Welcome to Rising. I'm joined today by Jessica Burbank, who's filling in for Brianna Joy Gray. We'll see Brianna later this week, of course. But in the meantime, happy to have you with me here, Jessica. Although not literally in the studio, I think you might be off in outer space somewhere. I am, Robbie, reporting to you live from somewhere in the galaxy. I didn't get enough on Friday, so I came back for a Monday, but I hope Brianna feels better soon. Fantastic. All right, what are we talking about? Let's get into it, Robbie. Former President Trump was ordered to pay $355 million in penalties and has been levied a lifetime ban on doing real estate business in the state of New York. Judge Arthur Engeron handed down the brutal ruling to Trump and a team of his executives late last week. Trump and his sons, Eric and Don Jr., are also barred from serving as executives at his company for the next three years. Prosecutors, as a reminder, say Trump fraudulently inflated his net worth and other property details on tax documents. Meanwhile, the New York Post reports that MAGA-loving truckers for Trump say they're refusing to drive their goods to New York City in protest of Judge Engron's ruling. There's no telling how many truckers could join in on that movement. And in a recent survey of a panel of so-called experts specializing in the American presidency, former President Donald Trump found himself at the bottom of the list. President Joe Biden, on the other hand, ranked 14th. So let's come back to that in a minute. But uh, as far as this um, court ruling, I was reading from um, Stephen Calabresi, who's a Northwestern law professor and one of the, uh, I think, a co-chairman of the Federalist Society, who was writing at um, uh, the Vola Conspiracy at Reason.com that this is a very bad ruling. He said the New York state laws used to go after Trump have never been used this way before historically, and that it was, in fact, a victimless crime, that the banks made their own assessments of Trump's net worth, that it is routine for people in Trump's position to use creative means to project, um, uh, to, to raise and lower what your assets are worth in purposes of securing loans and working with the banks, that this is common practice, and this is the first time ever someone has faced this kind of penalty for it. Yes, we live in a fun time in the United States, Robbie, where things that are common practice also happen to be against the law. Uh, Trump's alleged fraudulent, I guess it's not alleged because the the court officially ruled in this direction, that his ill, they said ill-gotten gains, so it's $370 million that Donald Trump got additionally in capital gains or what have you, through getting better interest rates, getting loans that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise, thanks to him inflating his assets. Now, I wouldn't feel good about this as just a, a normal person, but also as a working class person, you kind of think the reason that people have to go to work every single day and work for a wage is because they don't have capital to start businesses. And a big reason they don't have capital to start businesses is because they can't get loans to start businesses because it turns out you have to have some kind of track record. You have to have some kind of assets as collateral. You have to have good credit, right? And something to prove that if things go south, you can sell it and still make good on your loan with the bank. Trump, by inflating his assets, was lying about what kind of collateral he had. 
This kind of lending has been very risky in the financial world. It's caused financial crises. But just as as a regular working person, as a little guy, you know, it doesn't feel good that someone who supposedly will fight for the middle and working class people of the United States is willing to just lie to get more loans, to start more businesses, to accumulate more capital than he already has. Now, Don Jr. and Eric can't run the business, but Ivanka could, which is really interesting. Yeah, I just don't know that you know you should have your business taken from you because it makes somebody else feel not good. You know, like the banks didn't sue. Tr- I mean, if the banks felt so that he misrepresented himself and this was outside common practice and they'd stolen from him, they could have gone after him. But in fact, that's not the case. And banks t- actually testified at the trial that they <laughs> would be happy to offer him money again. This is again, this is a politically motivated prosecutor, Letitia James, who came after Trump for this law, who ran who sought office on a platform of finding some pretext to go after Donald Trump, and she found it. So here we are. Well, I think some banks probably would have given loans to other business people who wanted to start a business, invest in a business they already have. And instead, that money went to someone who didn't have the assets to back up the loan. I mean, theoretically, if there's a small business owner who applied for a loan at the same bank and didn't get it, it could have been because that capital went towards Donald Trump when it should not have. So that would be someone who actually is her. I don't think it's a victimless crime simply because there's also a lot of contractors that worked with Donald Trump because he was also a fraudulent person uh, that didn't make good on his payments to contractors. Those people got burned as well. And so, yeah, of course, that's it's really tough for a contractor who's an electrician, who's a construction worker to sue Donald Trump, who's the head of a, a huge real estate corporation. But the the court couldn't rule on that. They couldn't make a decision on that. There were so many aspects of the business that were fraudulent. So making a decision on this, I think, will help maybe Donald Trump or the Trump family run their business in a more sustainable or honest way going forward. There were people burned. And I think the truckers refusing to go in and out of New York City It's a bit funny. It hurts them more than anyone else. Those contracts are huge. New York City is a huge economic hub. But the person who posted to X, the trucker who started this kind of movement, if you can call it that, said he's talked to 10 other truckers. So I really don't see this movement Mm. growing very much. It seems to be too small to have a real impact. What about these historians doing presidential rankings, which are, of course, you know, useless and totally different from how real people think? Um, these people, you know, ranking Joe Biden up there as like a decent president and Trump dead last. Of course, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are currently running against each other, and Trump is ahead in the polls. He's ahead in the swing state polls. Um, if the election were held today, he would win. It, I think it's this is a great way to show the um, the the discord between elites and experts and and that kind of people and ordinary folks whose you know whose lived experience is not I love Joe Biden and I hate Donald Trump for the most part. Yeah, to see Biden ranked 14th, it's kind of laughable. There's all kinds of weird standards that some historians use that other historians. So even a different group of historians just still wouldn't be representative of the American population, perhaps, but could maybe give a more critical uh, analysis of what makes a good president than just, you know, he he upholds American values. He's more of the same kind of establishment guy. He acts how we would expect a president would act. 
act. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why the American people don't approve of, of Biden as much as they have in other presidents, why he has has such low approval ratings compared to even right. Donald Trump or, you know, Obama halfway through his presidency when there was a financial crisis. And it's because people are struggling. It's not Biden's fault that the economy is as terrible as it is. We know wages have been stagnant since the 70s. But when you inherit this kind of economy and you don't make decisions to make life life better for everyday people, just appointing a different chair of the Federal Reserve who's not going to institute huge interest rate policies that produce more unemployment among the working population that's already struggling under inflation. There are all kinds of metrics that you could select policy-wise as to who would be a good president, maybe foreign policy-wise. What's the view of the global population of the United States right now? It's probably not very good considering most of the world categorizes what Israel is doing is wrong and the United States is financing it. There's all kinds of metrics that are very different from what I think this group of historians picked that, you know, are valid are things that most Americans agree upon, not just the progressive policy. Yeah. Um, as you pointed out, Biden's like approval ratings right now is lower than any recent president, yet he's being ranked 14, like what was it, 14th best president by these people. Totally just absolutely different from how actual ordinary Americans think. Presidential historian, you're absolutely right that these rankings are very arbitrary and mostly based on people's, I mean, I don't even know, how, how do you objectively say what would, like, we disagree, obviously, on policies. We did, Republicans, Democrats disagree on, on what are the good things to do for the country. So, of course, like, the politics of the person doing the ranking would, you know, correspond to who, the, unless you go far enough back in time where it's not, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln are, like, less political figures, so there's less things to disagree about, so, of course, they get ranked high. I always find it interesting, over time, um, which presidents have like fallen from the good graces of historians, which overwhelmingly is two people, Woodrow Wilson and Andrew Jackson, who were previously um, very well liked by a historian, by presidential ranking type people. But um, those two were very um, racially problematic for diff different reasons. Obviously, Andrew Jackson, um, like, genocidal toward Native Americans. Uh, Woodrow Wilson um, uh, having, you know, very backward and, like, pro pro-Confederacy views on, on, on um, equal rights for African-Americans. And, like, those things used to not hold those people back at all. But because of the increasing, like, salience of racial issues, they've now plummeted um, even in the eyes of, uh, of liberal historians. And then someone like Bill Clinton is actually ranked more positively by Republican-leading historians than Democratic historians, interestingly enough. Yeah, that is very funny. Trump being ranked last is, is maybe not surprising at this point. We just saw uh, that Mitt Romney said he wouldn't vote for Donald Trump due to this ruling that Donald Trump was found by the judge uh, to have had a history of sexual assault. This is the Gene Carroll case. And then also, I want to bring up another point related to the truckers, how people are responding to Trump's many court rulings that are not going in his favor but that there's a GoFundMe that currently has $310,000 raised for Donald Trump to help pay some of that $355 million settlement. I just wanted to see how much of a dent that would make. It's about 0.8%, so less than 0.01 percentage, or less than 0.1 percentage point. You would have to multiply what's already been raised, the $310,000, which is a pretty big sum of money, 
by 1,145 to get to 355 million. It just really paints the picture of, you know, how much money Trump really owes, how serious these rulings are, but also how much money Trump, you know, got according to this judge in ill-gotten hmm. gains, $370 million. Hmm. All right, we'll continue to follow that and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Got an important update from Ukraine as Russia has captured its first city since American aid first began to dry up. As reported by ABC News, Ukraine's military announced it's retreated from the key city of Avdivka in eastern Ukraine, ceding it to Russia after months of ferocious fighting that cost tens of thousands of Russian lives. Avdivka is the first notable Ukrainian city to fall since Russia took Bakhmut nearly a year ago. This comes as Biden is, of course, insisting, nonetheless, that the administration will continue to support Ukraine, quote, as long as it takes. Here's Vice President Kamala Harris saying just that at a security conference in Munich. We want to see Ukraine emerge from this war as a nation that is free, democratic, and independent. President Zelensky, as President Joe Biden, and I have made clear we will be with you for as long as it takes. Ukraine was the big topic at the Munich conference, though it seems there was little thought of anything past keeping Ukraine's military from utterly collapsing. From Politico, the conference comes as confidence in whether President Joe Biden can deliver for Ukraine is particularly low. And as former President Donald Trump, the Republican frontrunner, works to undermine the package. The plan now, as detailed or lamented in interviews with eight U.S. lawmakers and five foreign officials, is to just keep the Ukrainian military from collapsing. Many sidestepped the question of what a Ukrainian victory would look like or when it might happen. The situation with Ukraine comes as there are still genuine concerns over the specter of Russian space, space nukes. One journalist concerned that the sky might fall as the Pentagon spokesperson if we should be concerned about the nukes now or if we would die another day. Take a look. Thank you. Let me go to the phone here. Uh, Jeff Shogel, Task and Purpose. Thank you. I know this may be a question for Soviet Premier Putin, but the god-awful thing that the Russians want to put into space, is it like Goldeneye, the thing from the 1995 Bond movie? And is the is it time for all of us on the ground to join Jed and the Wolverines? Jeff, I'm not sure how to respond to that. Um, I guess we just have to live and let die. <laughs> All right. Some James Bond humor there, of course. Um, let's talk about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, not good news, obviously, for the Ukrainian defense. They've now lost this city. Uh, many Russian casualties, of course. But the question is, how much longer can Ukraine possibly last? And, and we are not interested. Many uh, Republican members of Congress have held up um, the vote for additional aid because, and, and Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said this to me this morning in an interview I did with him for Rising, that's going to be up a little bit later, look for that, said which, what I think many people feel is that this is not a situation where Ukraine can possibly win and to give them more money, you know, from a country our own that is hideously in debt and has so many of its own problems, when they are not going to defeat Russia, they're not going to drive Russia from their country. In fact, they're they're 
you know, they're losing, that they've been occupied and they're not going to take back land. At what point does reality trump naivety? Right. Cutting the national deficit has been such a focus for so many politicians. But as soon as it's aid to Israel, it's aid to Ukraine, that goes out the window as soon as we're spending money on defense. And it's not just the special packages where they're tacking on aid to Ukraine and Israel, along with trying to pass some immigration policy reform. It's it's the annual defense budget that they're just increasing year over year to exorbitant amounts. When Eisenhower was giving his for farewell speech, he warned of the military industrial complex becoming an issue for the United States. Yes, of course, we're at a point where militarily we know there's huge weapons that countries that are not friendly to us have. You know, we just talked about Putin potentially having space nukes. And so we're at a point where we do need to maintain some kind of constant defense and not just invest in military technology and spending during wartime. But at what point does the U.S. having multitudes of what every other country has become excessive? At what point does making the calculation of which side should we be on in international conflicts that don't directly affect the United States, how much money should we be spending on those? And why are we picking some and not others? And how do we even pick sides when there seems to be some kind of inconsistency over whose side we're on. Israel going into Palestine and killing many innocent civilians. We talk about Israel as if, you know, they're an ally to the United States and they're the good guys in this fight. When we look at the sheer number of casualties and deaths we have, many being women and children, we have to question that, especially when we think of Russia going into Ukraine and killing many civilians there. We talk about Russia as if they're the worst and that we need to go in and help Ukraine. So the inconsistency is a huge problem. But just the sheer amount of dollars we're willing to throw at this conflict, of course, it's sad to see innocent people die. Of course, we want to protect them. But at some point, we need to make the calculation. How long will this go on? How much right. will we lose? How much will Ukraine lose? And in the long run calculation, is it worth it? That's a calculation that's seemingly not being made. Right. And I, th I think it's absolutely called on to you know condemn Russia for engaging in this invasion, to you know, criticize Vladimir Putin for any number of actions, including, you know, the death of his main political leader, Alexei Navalny, in a, a Siberian prison, which is um, a blow to political freedom and free speech and the democratic process, all things that are important to the U.S. and important to the world and that we say are at stake in this conflict. However, you know, we have to be realistic about what can actually be done here. And the reality is I don't know how Ukraine could possibly succeed in this effort. And there, thus, there must be some negotiation to stop more innocent people from dying on both sides. My interview with Senator Johnson, he raised the, uh, the question about whether the Biden administration scuttled potential um, negotiations very early on between Putin and Zelensky that would have put an end to this war you know, a, a long, long time ago, before so many people had died, before so much devastation had been wrought. And, and, and he sort of accused the Biden administration of, you know, of not, of, of not, of, of preventing that from taking place. Um, Biden, you know, has said over and over again, we'll give Ukraine whatever it wants, we'll support it to the end. But of course, but that's not happening anymore because there's this dissatisfaction um, with the, uh, with, with, again, with continuing to spend beyond our means on a, a U.S. domestic side when we have all these problems at the border and other places, and many Republicans and some Democrats aren't willing to do it anymore. So that's just, you know, that's just like reality setting in. 
Right. And it doesn't make it any better that with a lot of these packages, you know, Bernie Sanders was really upset that about $10 billion rather allocated towards Israel was unrestricted military aid. This comes at a time when allegedly President Joe Biden has been pressuring Netanyahu behind closed doors in their meetings. John Kirby spoke about this in several White House press conferences last week that Biden's frustrated with the amount of civilian casualties we've had. Now, they've talked about the operation on the ground in Rafa about how many civilians have died? How will they prevent civilians from dying now? There's 1.5 million people pushed into a space that's smaller than the size of Heathrow Airport. And Gaza's small to begin with. And you have John Kirby recognizing this, that they have to be careful when they begin the ground invasion. Of course, Biden and Netanyahu talked about the ground invasion. And so he was asked, how are you going to prevent civilian casualties? And the response was, well, that's up to them. They'll figure something out. Their track record shows that, no, they absolutely won't, and that they've made that moral calculation of and have basically decided that Palestinians are expendable in their efforts to eradicate Hamas. At some point, we have to have restricted military aid. There has to be some kind of strategy there because the United States has their own laws that say they will not give aid militarily to human rights violators. There has to be some kind of restriction as well on Ukraine on the front of what's the strategy there. And as soon as the United States starts talking about helping them with decisions, they get very wary. John Kirby's very, you know, reluctant to say that the United States is involved in the decision making. But if it's U.S. dollars and U.S. weapons being manufactured and sold through Congress on the line, maybe the United States should be. Mm. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. In an update from the Israel-Palestinian war, Israeli forces have released video they claim shows weapons and ammo found in the parking lot of Nasser Hospital, which proves the hospital was a base for Hamas forces. Take a look. <laughs> Now, this comes as violence increases at a crossing into Rafah in southern Gaza, where police forces opened fire at a crowd of Palestinians rushing at an aid truck. Israel has vowed to launch a ground invasion of Rafah by the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which begins March 10th, if the remaining hostages are not released by Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu vowed to, quote, finish the job in Gaza, adding a hostage relief release can, quote, be achieved through strong military action and tough negotiations. Netanyahu's statements come as mass protests erupted in Tel Aviv. Protesters called for the Israeli government to resign and begin bringing Israeli troops home. Meanwhile, President Biden is increasingly facing calls from his left to do something about the ongoing violence occurring in the Gaza Strip. In Swing State, Michigan, an effort by Muslims that's backed by Congressman, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, looks like it could strongly threaten Biden's re-election chances. From the New York Post, squad member Rashida Tlaib publicly encouraged progressives to vote against President Biden in Michigan's upcoming Democratic primary in protest over his support for Israel's war in Hamas. The, quote, Listen to Michigan campaign, championed by Tlaib's younger sister Layla, uh, 
encourages Democrats to vote uncommitted in the Great Lakes state's upcoming February 27th primary. Biden appears to be in trouble with black voters as well, leaders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, nation's oldest predominantly black denomination, have called for the U.S. to halt all funding and other support for the Jewish state, describing Israel's actions as genocide. So obviously it remains to be seen how much this will hurt Biden in the general election. This is just the, you know, the primary. It's about sending a, which he's going to win, it's about sending a message, however, uh, about his policies, which do seem to have the left extremely upset um, with respect to Israel. Yeah, reasonably so. 30,000 people killed in Palestine by Israel. When you think about this, in the framework of how this administration has described it, that this is Israel somehow defending itself, it just doesn't make sense. When you have people protesting the Netanyahu regime in Tel Aviv, in Israel, when you look at some of the polling coming out of Israel and whether or not Israelis support what the Netanyahu administration is doing, it's shocking. You find that they're extremely critical of Netanyahu, that they don't support the killing of Palestinians, especially to the degree that we have seen. And then you have Biden saying, yes, the killing of civilians has been over the top and they need to rein it in. But you have the United States time and again voting against a ceasefire at the United Nations. You have the United States continually sending weapons to Israel. And so you can't say you want civilians to stop dying and then give them the means to kill more civilians and have a track record of voting in the direction of wanting them to continue the killing. It just doesn't make sense. And so for voters to pull their support of Joe Biden in the primary, it makes perfect sense. This is what I would expect of someone like Rashid to leave of the squad who went in there to, to change the Democratic Party, to change how the country does politics. And what we've seen on the left, unfortunately, is a lot of people falling in line with the Democratic Party, which in this case means supporting Israel, which is something many people are not willing to do. So yeah, I think it's going to cause a lot of problems from within the Democratic Party. But I think we will see it affecting the general election as well to some degree, because voters are not going to be excited to vote for someone who's supporting this. I mean, I think the sentiment in Israel is still overwhelmingly in support of what's going on in Gaza. The most recent polling I can find is from a month ago, which shows maybe some declining um, faith that the they're going to succeed in their mission in taking out Hamas, but that they utterly and absolutely support attempting to do so. There is some frustration with Netanyahu, I think, coming from all sides. There are people who, uh, right, who agree with you that this is a genocide and it should be done even within Israel itself. There are those who maybe, who probably support the action going on or support it even more, uh, even, even more so, but don't trust Netanyahu to carry it out or, you know, distrust his own history and, and how he, con um, the allegations of, of, you know, covertly or tacitly support Supporting Hamas himself in order to delegitimize the um, the the more um, the the less fringe Palestinian political uh, organization in the West Bank. Um, however, I you know I don't expect public. I mean, it look, does not look to me like public sentiment within Israel is turning against the war effort, which means this is going to continue, and it's on the Biden administration to decide whether we should continue to fund um, a government that is taking actions that Biden himself claims he doesn't support, that he supports a two-state solution, that Netanyahu does not, that they need to do more to limit civilian casualties, and that they don't agree with a lot of the actions taken, including, I, I believe, this invasion of uh, this uh, military operation in Rafah. So Netanyahu has signaled over and over again that he's going to do what he thinks is in the best interest of his country, or I guess in 
for his administration and what is Biden going to do with it, do, do about that. And so far, what Biden's going to do about that is absolutely nothing. Just complain about it privately, kind of, sometimes. Yeah, when we look at the polling coming out of, of Israel, saying that only 15 percent of Israelis, this is as of January 2nd, want Netanyahu to stay in office. And also you have 44 percent not supporting the continued military offensive as a response to get the hostages home. And so when you look at that, that's a significant number when you think it's coming from Israel, because we see similar polling coming out of the United States. And this is a war that many people don't have a direct stake in here at home, but they see US support of it. And for it to mirror almost the Israeli population is, is very interesting. And to see that 15% only want Netanyahu to stay in office, at the very least, we need someone else making decisions on behalf of Israel. Because even if you support a continued military operation to bring the hostages home, that could mean you support a very strategic uh, uh, effort, a very uh, covert operation type of uh, military endeavor to bring these hostages home. You could support very precise military strikes only on Hamas bases. So continued military operation can mean a variety of things. And I think when you're asking Israel, of course, you know, they're going to say they want the hostages to be brought home. Yes, we have the military power and support of the United States to be able to do that. But the indiscriminate bombing of civilians, I, I just don't think is something that a lot of Israelis would say they support if you ask them directly. A big problem with these polls is they're kind of framed to get a favorable response. But I think when we look at the military offensive as a whole, it's putting Israelis at a greater risk, especially when you consider what's happening in the region. When we think about the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea attacking shipping, there are a lot of people that are more critical of Israel than they ever have been before because of the military operation. And so if I was an Israeli, I'd be extremely worried that what Netanyahu's doing is putting them at risk. We will continue to monitor that situation. We'll have more rising right after this. President Biden is raising new concerns about his age. It just won't quit this issue. Last week, during a presser on Russia and Ukraine, Biden appeared to have a 10-second mental freeze before trailing off. Take a look. All of us should reject the dangerous statements made by the previous president that invited Russia to invade our NATO allies if they weren't paying up. He said if an ally did not pay their dues, He'd encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want. I guess I should clear my mind here a little bit and not say what I'm really thinking. Whew, the incident sparked more concerns about Biden's mental health and the ability to do the job of the president. In an op-ed for The New York Times, leftist writer Ezra Klein urged Biden to end his White House bid, go out as a, quote, hero. From The New York Times, he writes, I think Biden, as painful as this is, should find his way to stepping down as a hero, that the party should help him find his way to that, to being the thing he said he would be in 2020, the bridge to the next generation of Democrats. So this is something that is now being talked about in uh, more mainstream circles as recline a prominent progressive um, writer and speaker and thinker for The New York Times, um, as mainstream an outlet as you can find. Uh, however, I don't think 
Biden is going, is going away. I keep saying this. No one can force him from the ticket, right? He would have to decide that. And he seems to have every intention of continuing to run, even as we're treated to moment after moment after moment, like the one we just played, where he loses his train of thought, where he, you know, misremember, he tells an anecdote about the wrong person. He, he, it's well beyond just saying one word when he means another, or, you know, confusing France and Germany, that kind of thing. We all do that, and then you correct yourself. But he tells these entire stories about people where he's thinking of the wrong person and now and loses his train of thought for an embarrassing amount of time um and the presidency is a is a communications job he's you know the form that's what his job is to be on tv to discuss what his platform is to reassure the american people that competent people are in charge and are thinking through our national security and our other issues is he projecting that confidence right now He's done less interviews than any president since Reagan. And TV was like kind of a new thing then. Doing filmed interviews was like kind of new. So they didn't have as much of the technology as we have now. Biden opts for more social media posts. But I think people really want to see him speak candidly and speak with the press about what's going on in the country. Yes, it's been a productive legislative session these past few sessions under President Biden, but it's also the case that we we have uh, you know a lot more bipartisan legislation passing because of how close uh, you know the majorities are in both the Senate and the House. The White House said that if we make fun of President Biden's age, or if we point out simply that he's old and not in his most prime cognitive years, they've called this prejudicial. They said the language Robert Hur used, the special counsel used in describing Biden as a well-meaning elderly man, but very forgetful, clearly his age affects his cognitive function, that that's somehow prejudicial. I just don't understand that. The prejudice against old white men, that we treat them so badly, we force them into terrible jobs where they have to serve in the U.S. Congress, and as the president of the United States, we treat them very badly. 75% of Congress is, is white. That's shocking. The the idea that Joe Biden has some kind of pre prejudice against him because he's old is ridiculous. He's enjoyed a very long career. And I think at this point, the assessment is accurate that it's his ego that's getting in the way, that he's served in the U.S. Congress for so long and has been in politics for so long and has tried to be president so many times over that now that he's finally got it, He's clinging on to it, and that's very concerning for the American right. people. And there's nothing unique to Biden about that, right? The clinging to power of people who are very advanced in age and are manifesting some of the, we're seeing some of those symptoms. That's true of Mitch McConnell. That was true of Dianne Feinstein, who, who died still in the Senate. Um, that's true of so much of our leadership. The average age of our members of Congress has gone way up. Uh, the leadership is as old as it's ever been in U.S. history. And there is no one, there is no broader party infrastructure that the smoke-filled rooms don't really exist anymore in in a, in a in terms of being able to you know shunt people to the side when they're no longer so politically useful now it is it you know Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican party and Joe Biden is the leader of the Democratic party they're in charge and they're they're both very old polls show a lot of dissatisfaction with both of them they don't have a very high approval ratings that you know they do within their own parties but not you know broadly speaking across the uh, across the aisle what 
whatsoever. Biden, you know, most unpopular uh, president at this stage in his presidency of any of the, the recent uh, five or six of them. Democrats saying, you know, two-thirds of Democrats, uh, uh, sorry, three-quarters of all voters and a majority of Democrats saying the age issue is a serious one and it gives them a lot of pause about Joe Biden. You know, that's what, that's what Democrats are saying. That's what swing voters and independents are saying. So for him to just proceed, it'd be one thing for him to just proceed, say, yeah, I'm running for re-election. There's not going to be a real primary process. There's not going to be actual debates. It'd be one thing for him to do that if, you know, if his approval ratings were, were, were super high and it was showing that actually Democrats really do want him. They weren't sending any signals to pollsters or otherwise that they have doubts about Biden. But all of those signals are taking place. And yet they are, you know, Ezra Klein is, is kind of still the exception, right? When you see pro-Biden pundits, journalists, surrogates on, on TV, they'll all say, they're 100% behind him and that there shouldn't really be a primary process. Biden is the president. He gets to run for re-election, you know, bow down. That's just how it works, and which is totally contrary to how actual voters and actual Democrats feel about the man at this moment in time. And I think most people within the Democratic Party leadership realize that it's been the case that for far too long, there's been legislation passed that, you know, isn't going to regulate Congress in any way. We're going to pass huge military uh, defense spending in the case of Donald Trump, huge corporate tax cuts, all of these things that really increase wealth disparity in the country. And Joe Biden is not someone who's really challenging the wealth disparity in the United States in a meaningful way, even though I think many conservatives have been made to believe that he is, but he really hasn't passed any significant policy that's going to even out the wealth distribution in the United States of America. And I think they know that any other candidate that is voted for is going to be one with a strong economic message and keeping Joe Biden in office just feels like the wealthiest people, the people who donate to Joe Biden's campaign, clutching their pearls and trying to keep their share of capital and wealth in the United States. And they're like, fine, he's old. At least he's not jeopardizing our wealth. That's really how it feels to me because the Democratic Party has only gotten more and more progressive. And you're right. The Times ran a national poll last fall that showed 71% of the country thinks Biden is too old. And in a national poll, Democrats, overwhelmingly, the majority, think that Biden is too old to be the president. And then in other surveys, not just polls, where they ask about the kind of characteristics someone wants in a president, people view with the same unfavorability someone with a felony as someone who's over the age of 80 being the president of the United States. Many voters believe the age should be capped at 70. So where we are right now just feels like a bunch of old people backed by a bunch of rich people hanging on to the old times for dear life. Yeah, very much so. All right, we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. A bipartisan group of centrist House lawmakers unveiled an emergency funding bill on Friday that includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, in addition to border security, after Republicans, of course, threw cold water on the foreign aid package passed by the Senate earlier last week. Now, our next guest voted no on that package, and here he is making the case for his vote on the Senate floor. As sympathetic as I am for the Ukrainian people, I don't see how setting another $60 billion helps their plight, because I see no strategy whatsoever on the part of the Biden administration to actually try and end the war. 
And joining us now to discuss funding for Israel, Ukraine, and the border, and more, is Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Welcome to Rising, Senator. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. We're very glad to have you. Let's get your perspective on what do you think the U.S.'s role and responsibility at, is at this point to a country such as Ukraine, um, invaded by Russia and defending itself, but of course many American taxpayers wondering if continued funding is actually going to help bring a, a resolve to the war on Ukraine's side. Well, first of all, I think most Americans are highly sympathetic with the plight of the Ukrainian people. Uh, they were invaded. Uh, I think most people recognize Vladimir Putin as a evil war criminal. Uh, so I think that's basically the position of most Americans. I, I think what our role right now needs to be is to recognize reality. Uh, I don't like current reality. I, I didn't like it uh, back in 2014-15 when, when uh, uh, Vladimir Putin first uh, invaded uh, uh, Crimea, uh, illegally annexed it, uh, then invaded eastern Ukraine. Uh, I don't like that reality. But uh, the fact of the matter is... Uh, Vladimir Putin will not lose this war. Uh, Russia has four times the population. Uh, they're cranking out uh, about four and a half million of the 155 millimeter shells that they're firing about 10,000 a day. The West, I don't even think, can manufacture a, a million a year. Uh, we are now in a two-year-long bloody stalemate. Uh, the goal of U.S. policy should be to end this war. And in any support we provide right now should be directed toward trying to convince Vladimir Putin to come to the negotiating table. Again, it's not going to be easy. I was the only member of Congress who went to Zelensky's inauguration. I went back a few months later with Senator Murphy. Uh, one thing that uh, President Zelensky at that time told us is he wanted to do a peace deal with Putin back then. Uh, this is before, obviously, Putin had invaded uh, uh, the last time, but he was in firm control of Crimea, eastern Ukraine, and Zelensky knew that he could not dislodge Russia from Ukraine. He knew it wouldn't be popular, but uh, he realized that was the only rational thing to do. Um, now we're, we've gotten the invasion. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died. You know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands more have been wounded. Uh, if you're concerned about the plight of the Ukrainian people, I think we need to understand that what's happening right now is that their country is being destroyed. Every day that goes by, again, this whole thing only ends with the negotiated settlement. Every day that goes by, that settlement gets worse and worse as more Ukrainians die. More Russian conscripts die. Take no joy in that. These are you know, men that are yanked out of their villages uh, in, in Russia, put on the front as cannon fodder, and, and more of Ukraine gets destroyed. So our goal should be to end this thing. I'm not going to like the result, but uh, every day that uh, passes, the re result's going to get worse and worse and worse. Do you think the Biden administration is interested at all in facilitating peace talks between Russia and Zelensky? Doesn't sound that way. Again, I would be very interested in what happened in Istanbul when it sounded like pretty early in the conflict, uh, Russia sat down with Zelensky and they were com coming to terms. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, came to the mix and something happened there. It doesn't sound like President Biden has talked to Putin in, in a couple of years. Um, I, I thought the Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin was extremely interesting. Uh, we, we do need to take a look at the reality situation. He's almost mocking us uh, the, in terms of sanctions. They haven't worked. They haven't destroyed uh, Russia's ability to carry on this war. Uh, they continue to sell oil. Their industrial base, uh, if anything, is, is growing. Uh, the fact that uh, they are now trading oil in things other than U.S. dollars is just going to weaken our position as the world's reserve currency, which is the greatest danger we face, uh, $35 trillion in debt. 
So again, we have to look at the reality situation. We have to stop relying on, on rhetoric and demagoguery and, and looking at the world as we wish it were and start looking at it as it is and dealing with the reality situation. We're, we're not very good at that in, in Washington, mm. D.C. Let's turn to the border. Um, you know, many on the other side of the aisle will said, well, Republicans said they, they were not willing to go along with, um, with funding for Ukraine and other matters until we did something about the border. And then we presented a bill that ju did just that, that had Republican input as well. Your colleague, Senator James Langford, helped put it together. And then it got rejected um, anyway. Can you, can you respond to, to that criticism of you know, people saying, Democrats saying Republicans were, wanted this and we gave it to them and then said no? We didn't want an immigration bill. We wanted something to force Biden to use the authority he has uh, to actually secure the border. To the extent he needed some of that authority strengthened, we were happy to do that. Uh, that bill was an immigration bill. It was worse than doing nothing. It codified an awful lot of uh, President Biden's open border policies. By and large, would have normalized thousands of people entering this country a year illegally without valid asylum claims. So, I mean, it was an, it was an awful, awful bill. I, I mean, people like me complaining about it, uh, didn't kill that bill. That bill killed itself. It gave Democrats cover. I mean, it was the stupidest thing to negotiate. Uh, that was a uh, leader McConnell that uh, masterminded that debacle. Uh, but what we all we ever asked for in conference was uh, the fact that we knew that President Biden is lawless. He doesn't agree. He doesn't follow Supreme Court uh, rulings. Uh, there's no way we could rely on him on carrying out any agreement we reached. So we were looking for a forcing mechanism. Uh, I suggested just tying Ukraine funding to actual border metrics, uh, like we do in business all the time, performance metrics. Uh, that, even though we talked about that repeatedly in conference, uh, there's a great deal of support with Republican senators. Uh, McConnell, without telling anybody, just conveyed to James Langford, that's not even on the table. Uh, so again, we, we, we didn't have leverage. I mean, it was, it was the stupidest negotiation done in secret. Uh, this is something the public demands, that they want a secure border. That bill would not have secured the border. Again, it would have codified uh, Biden's open border policy that is facilitating right now the multi-billion dollar business model, some of the most evil people on the planet, the, the drug, the human, the sex traffickers. Uh, we actually need to secure the border, and that's, that's what we're looking for now. Can the can Republican voters, um, you know, trust in their leadership to address a, a lot of these problems? Because there seems like you yourself pointing out that Senate, uh, the, the Senator Mitch McConnell having this very agenda of, uh, of, yeah, of prioritizing funding for Ukraine and, and being initially in support of this bill on the border that you're describing as very hostile to conservative goals. Is there a mismatch between the leadership of the Republican Party, including in Congress, and what its actual supporters and voters um, want in terms of a realistic foreign policy, um, sanity at the border, other issues? I think there's definitely a mismatch between Leader McConnell and people who support Republicans. Uh, you know, Leader McConnell's been leader, I think, since 2007, when our debt was below $10 trillion. Now it's approaching 35. In all that time period, there's been one constant at the negotiating table, whether we're negotiating debt ceiling increases, appropriation bills, or, or budgets. That's been Mitch McConnell. So I would not consider that type of leadership a conservative leadership. Wouldn't even consider it successful center-right leadership. Uh, $10 trillion to $35 trillion. And now this debacle of a negotiation on border security is it's just, you know, that that's, for me, the final straw, which is one of the reasons mm -hmm. I'm speaking out so strongly. Obviously, I, I helped lead the effort. Uh, Rick Scott uh, agreed to run to challenge McConnell if he gained this Congress. Unfortunately, we only got 10 votes. Uh, 
but there will be another challenge next time we have a vote for Republican leadership in the Senate. Uh, I personally think, uh, you know, Speaker Johnson has got the right goals in mind. Uh, we'll see. He's, he's got a very difficult task with him with such a narrow majority in the House. Do you, do you think, before we let you go, do you think in, in a you know future challenge there would be more votes in the Senate to uh, replace uh, McConnell with somebody else? I mean, I hope so. I hope we were able to replace him or he just decides to step down himself. Hmm. Uh, I will certainly be reminding my colleagues of this debacle over the board. I mean, we, we had an opportunity here to use uh, the, the president's desire for you come funding for Ukraine to force him to secure the border. And we completely and utterly blew it. I mean, just look at at, at, at Majority Leader Schumer's comments. He said that the Democrats were playing chess while the Republicans were playing checkers. And now, you know, few weeks afterward, they're in so much better position on the border. Let's face it, the Democrats want an open border. They caused this problem, and Leader McConnell gave them cover. Uh, it's, it's hard to think, you know, of, of, a, of a worse negotiation than uh, what Leader McConnell uh, masterminded there. Hmm. Senator Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Have a good day. Is Atlanta District Attorney Fonnie Willis just misunderstood? According to a new Associated Press write-up, DA Willis's testimony last week evoked long-standing frustrations for Black women leaders. Per the AP, Latosha Brown, co-founder of voting rights group Black Lives Matter, despaired of the fact that Willis had to answer questions about, quote, whether she has money, whether she has cash or not, and why she has cash, who she sleeps with, who is she flying on an airplane with. She added, when white power, particularly white men, are being held to account, the first thing they do to disqualify the people, or the first thing they do is to disqualify the people that are holding them accountable, end quote. And in case you missed it, here's some of Willis's testimony from last week. Um, did you listen to any of the arguments? I did hear the, the arguments this morning. It's ridiculous to me that the you lied on Monday, and yet here we still are. And I did listen to that argument. Um, right, I listened to the argument this morning where Adam Abadi, I thought, did an excellent job pointing out how dishonest you were with the court on Monday. And um, I'm actually surprised that the hearing continued. But since it did, here I am. When the state was well, it's highly offensive when someone lies on you, and it's highly offensive when they try to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them, and I take exception to it. All right, not all across the me mainstream media are sticking behind Fonnie Willis, though. In fact, she's taken a lot of criticism. In The Atlantic, Richard W. Painter writes that recusal is the right course of action for the Fulton County District Attorney, even if the judge later rules in her favor. Painter writes, Willis needs to do what's in the best interest of her client, the people of the state of Georgia. She should step aside so that someone else can prosecute this case. So we've been uh, paying close attention to developments here um, in this, uh, in, in what's going on, showing that she did have this uh, romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the person she picked to prosecute the case against Donald Trump in Georgia. And it seems now to have been extremely well established that they had a pre-existing romantic relationship, one that began far earlier than was disclosed, that 
he did uh, take her on romantic trips and pay for them. And then he claimed in some footage we played last week in this um, divorce proceeding he's dealing with that he paid her back in cash, which uh, everybody knows is, um, you know, kind of laughable. It's, it's something that raises a lot of doubts when you say, oh, yeah, I, I paid, but I don't have a record of it because it was in cash. Um, that's a pretty uncommon thing to do these days. And so here we are. Now, Fannie Willis has consistently said she's, you know, being victimized here. She got up at a black church and said this is because they're coming after a black woman, very much, you know, trying to use identity politics kind of reasoning to explain why this is some sort of witch hunt, even as these clearly serious and not and not capable of being ignored ethical issues come to light. And so this is a case of the Associated Press finding, recruiting some people to agree that this is all about um, her status as a black woman. I don't know if I agree with that. I think sometimes when you use racial justice and racial politics, as a reason for why you're being treated poorly when that's not the case, when you are guilty, and Fonnie Willis did say in that same speech in that church that she's an imperfect person, it's a disservice to everyone who's experiencing racism, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the eyes of the law or what have you. In the case of Fonnie Willis, of course, if you go after Donald Trump, no matter who you are, they're going to try and find dirt on you. The law is, is going to come after you in terms of Trump's attorneys and attorneys that appreciate Donald Trump's particular political persuasion, uh, whether or not they're directly involved with his campaign. And so that's how the law works everywhere, though, unfortunately, is that if you become inconvenient for law enforcement, if you're someone of political interest, you will find yourself under more scrutiny than otherwise. That's really how the law works everywhere, not just in this particular case. Now, Fonnie Willis was, you know, seeing uh, Wade. They were partners. She testified it began in 2022, as did he. But then there was another witness that came forward and said that their relationship began in 2021. He got appointed to a more favorable position. It seems like she did that because of their romantic relationship. The cash that she had on hand, she also testified that she kept some cash from a campaign that she had, and now there are questions as to whether or not that was legal for her to do. So there's a lot more here going on than just she is a black woman. Does that make Donald Trump any more guilty or any less guilty? No, but at this point, if you're the district attorney, I think it's time to say, I'm a distraction to this case. I made some mistakes. Let's shake this stuff out separately. Let's deal with this separately. Let's appoint someone else to deal with the Donald Trump stuff. I think that would be a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, of course. And we haven't even gotten into the concerns about ethical potential violations at her office. A whistleblower came forward and said that campaign, or not campaign, that uh, that that money that the office had received was uh, was misspent, was misallocated. That this whistleblower had spoken up uh, about it and then had gotten fired. You know this whistleblower, too, was a, a, a black woman. So, you know, it's to, the, the idea that it's only, you know, when when to, to go to that well and say, you know, I was mistreated for this reason. Well, did you mistreat this person for that reason then? Does every, you know, everyone who something negative happens to them could make, could cite that as the reason. And this person is, is far from the only whistleblower who is, you know, prepared to come forward and discuss ethical issues going on in that office. So it seems very clear that her situation is a distraction. Also that Nathan Wade, her her boyfriend that she picked to handle this case, 
actually kind of lacks sufficient experience to be the person working from the government's perspective on this absolutely pivotal trial that has you know massive stakes in terms of who is going to be the next president. This is the case that could sink Donald Trump because it's state charges and he won't be able to, if he becomes president, you know, pardon himself out of them. Um, it is the, the, the case that involves so many alleged co-conspirators that can offer um, uh, you know, testimony against Trump, who can who can say that he directed him to do these things. So it is a very it is a very thorny legal situation for Donald Trump, and they put someone in charge of it who does not have very much experience prosecuting this kind of thing. That fact itself seems wild that that's what's occurring here. And so I, I can only imagine that um, nationally, many Democratic political figures who are who who would hope this case would be prosecuted to the full extent of the. To, to prosecute it competently because they hope it's going to result in a conviction of Donald Trump, got to be shaking their heads at what went wrong here. Right. And I just want to point out that getting a quote from someone affiliated with the Black Lives Matter you know, election division, working on getting more people to vote, they are not representative of Black Lives Matter. Let's keep in mind that Fonnie Willis is a district attorney. She's the top cop in Atlanta. Fulton County has charged 61 defendants with RICO charges for protesting Stop Cop City, protesting the huge development of a police training center just outside of Atlanta in the in the woods there. Now, they're facing, do facing domestic terrorist charges. If Fonnie Willis was on the side of Black Lives Matter, we wouldn't have coming out of, of Fulton County, coming out of where she is a district attorney in Atlanta, having 61 people charged with RICO charges for protesting cops to be trained, to have military means of prosecution of civilians. The whole point of the, the cop city training facility is to have cops receive the kind of training necessary to respond in a militarized manner to protest. So that's ridiculous. Fonnie Willis is not on the side of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. All right, we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Stay tuned. Embarrassing new body cam footage has gone viral after an Okaloosa County deputy mistook an acorn falling and hitting his car for the sound of gunfire, which sent him into a shooting frenzy in which he shot at an unarmed and handcuffed man sitting in his patrol car. Let's watch. Shots fired! Shots fired! Shots fired! Shots fired! You know. need any further clarification that officer was in fact not shot the Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office investigation released Friday a report released on Friday found that former deputy Jesse Hernandez used excessive force but he was cleared of any criminal wrongdoing according to reporting in the Washington Post 
Meanwhile, in other policing news, Democratic Mayor of Chicago Brandon Johnson chose not to renew the city's contract with the controversial gunshot tracking program ShotSpotter. The program, which police use to detect the location of gunshots, has earned flack from social justice activists who say it targets communities of color. So, Jessica, I don't know about you, but that footage, man. So he he did not he did not get shot. No one shot at him. He heard an acorn hitting the car. I think it was hard to to tell it there. I couldn't quite hear it, but they were able to play it during this investigation. It's very clear. It was an acorn hitting the car, which a second and a half later caused him to fall to the ground. Uh, he said he felt like he had been shot. He'd never been shot before. He didn't know what it felt like. He his legs gave out, and he thought he had been shot, again, he was not. And he fired wildly at that car in which he had a suspect in custody. So that person is was fine, was not hurt, was not hit by a bullet, although has is, you know, claiming obviously to be traumatized from the experience, um, which was horrible. But uh, they basically said, yeah, he had no reason to do it. It was excessive force, but we think it wasn't malicious, so oh well. And I was looking a little bit at this officer's background. He apparently had special forces training and had been in Afghanistan twice, but had not been uh, had not seen combat, had not seen any action. So I, I don't I don't even know what to say. Um, I, I think I think if you screw up that badly. Again, I don't know that he should go to—I'm not at all saying he should go to jail, but I, I don't know that you should continue to serve as a police officer if that is your response to an acorn falling on your car. There has to be something more going on. I fire a Glock 17, which is a police weapon. They use that model a lot. Now, when you hear a gunshot and you've been in the gun range and you've been around guns, you can tell the difference between that and even an engine backfiring, which is a super similar sound. An acorn hitting the roof of the car, I just don't know what's going on here. There was an unarmed black man in the back of the car. He and the officer he was with were both shooting into the cruiser after, you know, he said he shot, there's gunfire coming from the inside of the car. Thankfully, this guy was not hit by any of those bullets. So many questions. What kind of training can prepare our officers for ACORNs in active duty? Apparently, the Sheriff's Department says they are going to use this as an example in police training now. But I don't know. Seems like something more was going on, and this is not something you can train out of somebody. Yeah. It just seems like if that's your reaction, maybe police work is not the right profession for you. I mean, that, we watched that. That video is crazy. Um, to just wildly misunderstand um, what's going on. So, you know, we all deserve uh, uh, competent police services. Um, I want policing to be, you know, con uh, to be responsive to accountability and public demand. I, body cam footage is, is, is an important thing so we can see incidents like this and make up our own mind instead of trying to recall, well, what was the police officer's explanation? What was the, the individual involved, the other person on the other side's explanation? We don't have to judge that. We can watch the footage for ourselves, so I think that's a good thing. Um, I always you know, try to explain to people on the right who are kind of maybe reflexively on the side of, of law enforcement, that you know, law enforcement is a government service just like anything else. You know, if you have frustrations with, with, um, with 
the education system or the administrative state or all those things. Law enforcement is, again, another facet of government. I think it's an important service, and we need law enforcement, but we need cops who are well-trained and who are accountable when they screw up. I don't all cops are not, by any stretch of the imagination, bad people or all engaged in wrongdoing. It's a gross mischaracterization. But some of them are. And when they screw up, as they clearly did in this case, again, lucky no one was actually hurt, um, there has to be some accountability. At a minimum, you don't want someone like this on, on the force. I, I mean, to <laughs> I think anyone to grossly screw up their job that badly you know, would I'm not, not saying lock him up. I'm not saying anything of that nature, but it just seems like law enforcement may be not the right line of work for this individual. Thankfully, you're right, Robbie. We have the body-worn camera footage, so we can find the acorn that did this. <laughs> now, that's how they found it, by the way. They took a freeze frame of the body-worn camera footage to watch the acorn fall onto the roof of the car, which is hilarious. He mm -hmm. apparently didn't find out he had not been shot until he got to the hospital. And then the hospital informed him he was not shot. So between rolling around on the ground and getting to the hospital, were people asking him, where are you hit? And he was just, I don't know. Because the thing about getting shot is it tends to hurt. He would probably know if he was hit. I think you're right, Robbie. This is not someone who should be a police officer. People working retail get fired for far less mistakes. They could have killed someone over an acorn hitting the roof of the car. This is not someone who should be doing this job for a living. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of making fun of the situation because no one was actually hurt, so it's like okay to joke about it, but you're absolutely right. They could have they could have killed that suspect. Frankly, they were shooting, he was shooting wildly toward the car from some distance. You could have actually hit a bystander as well. You know, we don't want we don't want police to respond to just start shooting their guns wildly when there is absolutely no threat whatsoever. They could have hit anyone on the on the street. Something like that. It's not, you know, it's not if, a fire, if you're firing your gun, that, that's, that's like by default, that's intention to cause harm to another person. Um, it, it's got to be incredibly warranted. It was not warranted whatsoever in this situation. So um, an interesting story. Um, um, and uh, and that, do you know anything about this Chicago program that they're deciding not to use anymore? I have seen some reports that there was a little bit of racial bias in the data that there, because there was a history of over-policing in certain neighborhoods, that the way it was used, it relied on artificial intelligence. So it resulted in, in more police presence in, in black and brown neighborhoods. I don't know anything about the accuracy of it. I did see reports that there were questions about the accuracy of the shot spotters program, that it wasn't reliable. I don't think the mayor not renewing the, the technology or the contracts they had with shot spotters means they're not going to rely on this at any point in the future. It, it could just mean it needs more data, but it is very difficult to rely on data for law enforcement because there was a history in the post Jim Crow era, even through modern era of racialized policing, where there's a stronger police presence in black and brown neighborhoods. And so if you feed that into an algorithm, they're gonna think, well, crime is gonna happen where it's happened in the past and it's going to result in over-policing of those areas. So I'm always skeptical whenever hmm. artificial intelligence or big data comes and plays a role in law enforcement. Well, but I mean, if there's more, if there's more, there is more crime being committed in disproportionately, you know, low-income areas that are often also disproportionately um, minority areas, and so there is more crime there. So if you know, if the, I mean, it doesn't even take an algorithm to figure that out, right? If more law enforcement resources are being sent there, it's not 
because the algorithm is racist, it's that the actual reality is there's a racially disparate um, uh, element to crime. So I don't, I don't know that that, you know, that, that doesn't mean that people Robbie. should be... I would say if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, right, that whole thing, in the case of crime, if a crime is committed in a white neighborhood and a bunch of kids, let's say, are smoking weed and there's not a police officer there to arrest them and document the crime, the data is going to reflect that a crime wasn't committed. So over-policing of certain neighborhoods does make it look like there's more crime committed there when actually there are a lot of crimes that go unreported in areas where there's not a police presence. Well, if a tree falls and an acorn falls off it and hits a police car, <laughs> watch out. More rising right after this. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is slamming what he says is a heinous double standard after a congressional advisory panel voted yes to awarding GOP candidate Nikki Haley with Secret Service protection, but not RFK Jr. Kennedy wrote on X of this move, while I'm happy she'll be protected and publicly supported her request, double standards abound. My campaign first requested Secret Service protection in May of 2023 with a 63-page declaration. We still have a current request pending. Kennedy continued, my request is the first time in 55 years a candidate has ever been denied. The Biden administration is the sole outlier to turn down a request for Secret Service coverage. So this is very interesting. So Nikki Haley receiving protection as she, you know, continues to technically be a, a Republican primary candidate on that side, although Donald Trump overwhelmingly likely to get the nomination. You know, and RFK Jr. has been complaining for some time that he was has not gotten um, uh, so, uh, 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 security protection, Secret Service protection from uh, from the administration. The process for getting Secret Service protection involves a panel of actually congressional leaders uh, getting together and deciding whether to recommend um, this protection, and then the ultimate decision is made by uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who has denied it to RFK Jr. thus far. There was a lot of reporting pointing out that at, at the time at which RFK Jr. had initially asked for it, it was way, way, way ad, in advance of the election, uh, much further in advance than is usual, although I was just reading from ABC News more about how this has worked, and apparently Barack Obama, when he was a candidate, candidate in, um, in, uh, in, what, the 2008 election, um, did receive Secret Service protection pretty far out in advance. So did, um, so did uh, uh, candidates in subsequent cycles, Herman Cain, Donald Trump. You know, it has to do with the level of the, the threat assessment for have people threaten them, that kind of thing. RFK Jr. did have an angry person with a gun interrupt one of his events. He's paying for his private security. But frankly, what's offered by the Secret Service is much more robust. Um, I'm not really understanding the argument for not granting him protection, frankly, and, uh, and the administration hasn't offered one for what it's worth. Right. I'm not sure the level of threats the Nikki Haley campaign is getting, but having an angry person come into your event with a gun sounds like one of the larger threats we've heard about in mainstream media that's been reported on, that's come out of the RFK Jr. campaign. In terms of like other presidents like Obama, Herman Cain, Trump getting Secret Service early, it makes sense that there are some cases where the threats are so big 
that the standard 120 days out from a general election for presidential and vice presidential candidates just just doesn't apply because you know we'd rather keep those candidates safe it's good for our democracy if our candidates can live on to election day but in the case of nikki haley i mean her favorability rating is 33 percent rfk juniors is 52 percent do people hate her way more we have no idea what threats she's getting and the level of those threats. How real are they? How close do they get to actually harming Nikki Haley? In the case of RFK Jr., it's possible. He's receiving very serious threats or would be in more danger if he didn't have his own privately hired security. They could be acting as a deterrent. I think you're right that it just makes sense to grant the major candidates that are still in the race at this point access to Secret Service resources. Yeah, and he, he is a major candidate. He's a third-party candidate, but he's polling um, very high. Um, he's seeking ballot access um, in uh, across the country right now. And of course, you know, having so here's where people are going to wonder if what's it, what's going on here because he's spending a, a lot. He has to spend time, money, energy getting ballot access, uh, and he's also paying for you know private security. You know, given how his name recognition and all of that, he has to pay for private security. Um, you know, could those funds be spent for his campaign, getting him on the ballot if he were to, if if the the government were to take on the burden of actually protecting him through through um, through the Secret Service, which again is a is a is you, you want you want Secret Service protection if it's being offered to you. It's really really comprehensive. Um, it, you know, at, at this point, it seems like what the remaining candidates should should just should have it. This is, you know, we're living through a time of very intense political rhetoric. I, I fully believe if they think that Nikki Haley is is needing of it, that they she's received threats, that that's a appropriate course of action to take. RFK Jr. agrees with that. I, I just, I can't understand why they wouldn't give that protection to RFK Jr. as well, given what he's experienced, given the Kennedy name, people you know, people, there, there could be crazy people out there who have, an, you know, an axe or a conspiratorial axe against the Kennedys for various reasons. There's a, a, obviously a history of political violence against members of his family, his father, his uncle, etc. Um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, if, if they want to explain it, they can, but Mayorkas hasn't come out and said, here's why Kennedy doesn't meet the criteria. And you can't really make the case, well, it's so far out, we don't. We rarely so far before the election give, you know, Secret Service protection willy-nilly. Well, it's not that far out anymore. And, and as far as I can tell from reading, um, from, from researching it a little bit, they do, in, in exceptional cases, give, give protection even very far out from the election. And we're not very far, we're not far out anymore. And, and he's, a, he's a major candidate. He's going to continue to be a major candidate. He's going to be, frankly, longer than Nikki Haley in this campaign for the presidency, as she is still you know, running in a primary against Donald Trump that she's not going to win, whereas RFK Jr. is going to be, according to him, in the general election, running as an independent third-party candidate. So I'm, I'm, I'm just not getting it. If they want to explain it, go ahead, but they haven't done that. I'm not afraid to say it. Is it a political decision? Are we giving Nikki Haley the security because she's running against Donald Trump, who will probably ultimately be the candidate that Biden has to run against in the general election? So they're like, yeah, protect Nikki Haley for as long as possible. Make sure that she can make Trump look as bad as possible mm -hmm. before the general. But RFK Jr., he's going to be running against me and Trump in the general, let's make life harder for him. I can totally see people close to Biden, Mayorkas, people in the Department of Homeland Security 
totally hating the idea of an independent running a viable campaign in the United States. People in the establishment love the two-party system that we have, uh, or the uniparty system, as some people would call it. But I think that it could very well be a political decision. Absolutely, let's drain some resources from the campaign. He can pay for it himself, and therefore he has less money to run advertisements against us and invest in having more staff and getting on the ballot in the states where he wants to be on the ballot in the general very well could be a political decision. Yeah, it's it's hard not to reach that conclusion. If they want to disabuse us of it, tell us what's going on, or better yet, just give him the Secret Service protection. Seems like it would be a no-brainer at this point, but I don't know what's going through Alejandro Mayorkas's head at any given moment. But that does it for us for today. Thank you so much for filling in, Jessica. I'll be back tomorrow, and uh, we'll see who else is in the chair with me. It might be Brianna, it might be Jessica again. You might, if you return from space uh, in time, we might uh, have you back. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, Jess. Thanks, Robbie. Bye, y'all.